Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Uh, May our hearts and minds be open and attentive to your voice. That we would hear you, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're picking up in um, Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. And uh, continuing this uh, first Easter day, this resurrection account. And uh, um, if you were here last week, or if you listened last week, I was talking last Sunday about the beautiful symmetry that there is in Scripture, from how it all sort of dovetails Together, and I was talking last Sunday about how this is, you know, this first Easter day, it's, it's a day of new creation. And so there's so many echoes of the beginning of creation where we see God uh, creating the heavens and the earth, creating the universe. And then on the sixth day, God finishes all his work of creation. The seventh day, there's a Sabbath rest, and then creation begins. And we see that echoed here with. Uh, the, the, the years of Jesus' ministry and then on the cross, as Jesus, one of the last things that Jesus says from the cross is he says, it is finished. His work of redemption has, is, is completed and then Jesus rests in the tomb. He has a Sabbath rest as, as God did on that first seventh day. There's a Sabbath rest and then new creation begins because creation has been uh, redeemed uh, sin has been defeated, death has been defeated. And so that first Easter day, it's, it's the day of, of new beginning, of, of new creation. It's a day that will find its, ultimately it will find its fulfilment in what we read in Revelation chapter 21 about a new heavens and a new earth. No more tears, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. That's, you know, that, so, you know, in these strange days in which we live as we, as we mourn, the death of our queen, our our mourning is tempered by the hope that we have, that this is what we're looking forward to. And the certainty of it is that first Easter Sunday with the fact that the the tomb is empty. Jesus has risen from the dead. It's the beginning of of a new creation. And there's another echo in this this sort of symmetry of scripture that we have this morning um, uh, in verse 30, which we'll, we're going to kind of skip forward and then we'll come back and then we'll get back here. But I, it just, it's just so lovely, this, this symmetry in scripture, that here we have a meal. And it's a meal with these two, uh, probably husband and wife. We're not sure who, who, quite who they were. We just know the name of one of them, Cleopas. But possibly, probably a husband and wife who share this meal with Jesus. And as they share this meal, what do we read? We read that their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. Now, you'll know that that's a very clear echo with the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve who share a meal. It's a meal that they're not supposed to have. It's the meal that God has asked them not to have. They they have this complete freedom in the Garden of Eden to do anything they like. There's just one thing. Imagine living in a world where there's only one thing you're not allowed to do. You know, it's unimaginable. We live in a world, there are a million things we're not allowed to do. But Adam and Eve, in the beginning of creation, there was just this one thing. And it's there because they need to have relationship with the Lord. That's what they're created for. And so this tree, it, it means that they can have a relationship and not just be robots. Because every time they look at this tree, they have to think, well, you know, do we love? Do we love God? Do we love the Lord? As long as we love him, we won't eat from this tree. So they share a meal. Uh, Adam and Eve in in Genesis, and their eyes are opened as they do so. But their eyes are opened to suddenly 
um, sin and guilt and shame and embarrassment. And, and so suddenly they realise that they're naked and they sew fig leaves together. They make coverings for themselves and they hide from the Lord. They share a meal and it's a disaster. And we still live with the consequences of that disaster, of their rebellion against God. They share a meal, their eyes are opened and everything goes wrong. And, and here we have this echo because this another couple share a meal and their eyes are opened. But their eyes are opened not to disaster, to sin, to death, but to redemption and to recreation and to restoration. And it's just this beautiful symmetry in scripture that it begins with with a meal and eyes being open to sin. And now there's a meal and eyes being open to redemption and to the glory of God. It's just so lovely how the Bible, you know, it all interweaves, Old Testament and New Testament, it all weaves together beautifully in God's pattern. But, um, but here we have this, this couple on the road to Emmaus and they are full of, you know, they are, they're grieving and they're mourning, and their hearts are broken, because all their hopes have been dashed. And Jesus comes up and begins to walk alongside them. And it's just one of the most lovely things about this, about this story is, is the way Jesus comes and walks alongside them, and they have no idea who he is. And, and we're told that they were kept from recognising him. There's, it's not just that they... You know, I, I was one of the commentaries that I was reading this week. People try and think, well, why didn't they recognise Jesus? And um, one of the commentators says, well, it, maybe it's because they are uh, they're walking they're walking west into the setting sun, and so they're you know they're, they're blinded by the sun. And they, so, but there's just a sense actually they were kept they were kept from recognising. They just couldn't see him. And this is this lovely thing that whenever somebody comes to Usually when someone comes to faith in Jesus, they realise, they look back and realise actually Jesus had been walking with them for some time. It's often the way you, you kind of look back and you think, oh, actually, you know, that happened and, and this happened and that person spoke to me. And, and actually Jesus finds a way of walking alongside us before we recognise who he is. And there's a lovely sort of pattern of the journey of faith that we, we see in this in this episode, but they kept from recognising him, and, and so Jesus, you know, all innocent, said, "Well, what are you discussing? What are you discussing as you walk along?" And they're downcast. Uh, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? Don't you know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said, "Well, what things?" Uh, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, "He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people." The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So, so they're in this place where their, their hopes have been dashed. They thought God was going to do something. They thought God was going to act in a particular way and he hasn't. And so their hopes have been, their hopes have been crushed. And sometimes we make, you know, we make experience that we may have a, we have a hope, you know, we, we hoped that God was going to do X, Y, or Z. We hoped that he was going to do something and then God doesn't, he doesn't do it. And our, our hopes are, you know, our hopes are, are dashed. And there's something very, something very significant in the fact that when Jesus asked them what's been going on, 
And they say, well, about Jesus of Nazareth, he was a prophet. Is it significant that they refer to him now as a, as a prophet? Because a week ago, on Palm Sunday, they were part of the crowd that welcomed him as the Messiah. You know, they, you know on Palm Sunday, they cry out, you know, Hosanna to the son of David. Well, that's the, that's the cry of, of rejoicing and welcome for the Messiah. A week ago, their hopes have been, this is the Messiah who's come to rescue us. And they had a very fixed idea of, of how he was going to do that rescue. He was going to come as a military, uh, you know, as a kingly warrior. He was going to raise an army. He was going to lead a revolution and a rebellion that was going to kick out the Romans and establish his throne in Jerusalem. And it doesn't work out like that. And so... They're disappointed with him and they're disappointed with God. And so now they, when they talk about Jesus of Nazareth, they don't say, well, he was the Messiah because he's, in their, he's, kind of, he's not fulfilled their expectations. So, well, he was a prophet. You know, he was powerful in word and deed. And uh, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, uh, but he hasn't uh, because he's died. And so the, their expectations have been dashed. And it is something for that in us because, you know, when I look back over my life, there have been so, so many times when I had, when I've hoped that God was going to do something. You know, I had hoped that God would act and so things would work out this way. And God hasn't acted in the way that I expected. And things haven't worked out in the way that I had hoped and sometimes when, when that happens, almost unconsciously, we, we have this, this sort of disappointment with God. And our expectations of him are lowered, as they've been lowered for them. He, they thought he was the Messiah, and now, well, he was a prophet. And we've still got to wait. We've still got to wait for our salvation. And what Jesus has to do is say, well, actually, you know, God has redeemed Israel. But he's not done it in the way that you expected uh, you're expecting the kingly warrior, but actually he's come as the suffering servant. And actually, if you look back and read the scriptures as he explains to them, it's all, you know, it's all there in black and white. It's, it's, it's all there. He did explain beforehand and you've just sort of lost sight of it. And sometimes in our, in our disappointments, when our hopes have been dashed, we, we just have to take a step back and remind ourselves of, of who our God is and remind ourselves that you know, God doesn't do things the way that we would do them which is just as well, because generally we generally make a mess of things when we try and take matters into our own hands and, and sort them out. You know, uh, Isaiah says, you know, God says in Isaiah, you know, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And sometimes when we're disappointed, we just have to stay, take a step back and say, OK, I, I don't understand, but I still trust. I still trust in my Lord. I still trust that he is the rock on which I stand. I still trust that he, he, he rose again. So they, they're like, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. The reality is he did redeem Israel. He redeemed it through his death on the cross. Uh, but they haven't, quite, they haven't quite worked out the resurrection yet. So they're not quite in that, in that place. Although the, you know, the evidence is there, like, what is more? It's the third day since this took place. Some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning. Couldn't find his, his body. You know, the body's gone missing, but they haven't quite joined the dots and realised why the body is missing. That You know, last Sunday, when we think about the previous passage, the, you know, Mary goes, the women go to the tomb and they, you know, it's empty and, and they wonder about it. And Peter goes to the tomb and he, he wonders about it and haven't quite, 
haven't quite realised that the body isn't there uh, because Jesus is, is alive. But, they, you know, they're wondering about it. And uh, the important thing for them is they, they keep walking with Jesus. Even though their hopes have been dashed, even though they're disappointed, they keep walking with Jesus. And that's the important thing to do when, when we're disappointed because God hasn't answered our prayer in the way that we hoped he had. When our hopes have been dashed, when we're confused, when we're troubled, the important thing is to keep walking with him and not to walk away from him. And, and sometimes it happens that, that's, that people are disappointed by what God has done or hasn't done and they walk away. And, and I, you know, I know so many people who, who've, who've left the church because God disappointed them or something happened in their lives and they just thought, well, I don't understand how God allowed that thing to happen. Sometimes it's the, you know, it's the death of a loved one and they just think, well, I can't understand how God would allow that to happen and, and they end up walking away. And the Cleopas and, and the, whoever, the, the, these two disciples, they, even in their disappointment, they, they keep walking and they keep wondering and, and they don't walk away. And, and because they don't walk away, they do reach a point where they recognise that Jesus is with them on the journey. And that's really important for us when we are disappointed by God, that we don't step away, but we just keep walking. Um, Corrie ten Boom, uh, a lovely Christian lady who experienced the horrors of, of Auschwitz and lived through that and then spent the rest of her life speaking about the hope of Jesus and the, the power of reconciliation in Jesus. Uh, she said this lovely thing about if you're on a, on a train and it goes through a dark tunnel, uh, you don't throw away the ticket. Uh, you just sit tight and trust the driver to get you out the other side. And, and that's what we need to learn to do if, if we have this hope of the resurrection. Even when it all seems to go dark, uh, we don't throw the ticket away. We just sit tight and trust the driver. And so these two continue on their, on their journey. And um, there's this lovely thing where, you know, Jesus is like... Uh, you know, what were you discussing as you, you know, as you walk along and, and, you know, what things are you talking about? And then, and then suddenly he like explains it all to them. So he goes from being this, this kind of pretending he knows nothing and then actually he knows everything. Uh, you know, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Because it's, it's all there. And that's sort of, you know, it's the lovely thing that when we, you know, when we realise who Jesus is and when we come to faith, all the information that we need to know, it's, you know, it's there. It's there. And the lovely thing about scripture is when we read scripture, you know, it's a living book. You know, it's the only book uh, that, that we read, that every time we read it, the author of the book is with us. You know, occasionally you go to, you know, you go to a book signing and the author of the book, you know, reads bits out of his book. But generally, when we read a book, the author isn't there. You know, scripture is so different because it's, it's a powerful book. It's a living book. And when we read it, he explains and makes it all come to life for us. And that's what Jesus does for them. He's, he goes back through Moses and all the prophets and he brings it to life and he shows them these things that are so clearly there. All these hundreds of prophecies that Jesus fulfills. Uh, and, you know, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, it's all there. They approach the village to which they're going. Jesus acted as if he was going further. They urged him strongly, stay with us. It's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. 
When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognised him and he disappeared from their sight. And this is so, these couple of verses, they're so beautiful, there's so much packed into them because it's such a, it's such a simple thing that they're, you know, they share a meal and they've just got bread and they break, he, he takes the bread, gives thanks, breaks it, gives it, gives it to them. And the whole, the whole gospel is encapsulated in this simple, you know, this simple action because Jesus has said uh, that he is the bread of life. He's the, he's, he's the most important thing that we need. He is the, he is the bread of life. And um, literally on the next page, the beginning of John's gospel, uh, we read, you know, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, was, was with God and the word was God. And then verse 14, John 1, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. So Jesus takes bread, this, this very simple thing, and it's just a reminder of the incarnation that Jesus has become for us the bread of life. This, this God who created the heavens and the earth has been incarnated in human form. He is he lived physically he is the bread but then he he breaks it and so we go from the incarnation to the crucifixion that as every time we break the bread what are we reminded of we're reminded of the crucifixion that jesus's body was broken on the cross broken in our place took on himself our sin so we go from the incarnation he takes the bread he breaks it we go to the crucifixion but it's Jesus who's doing this with them. So he speaks of the resurrection because it's the risen Christ who's breaking bread and sharing it with them. So in just these few words, we have the incarnation, this God who loved the world so much that he sent his son Jesus to be the incarnate word of God, word made flesh. And yet this God who sacrifices himself for us, whose body is broken on the cross, and yet it's Jesus who's breaking the bread. So in front of their eyes is the resurrection. And it's the whole gospel in these few words. God incarnate, God crucified, God resurrected. And um, it's, I was thinking it's, it's a shame that this, this kind of passage didn't fall on a Sunday when we were having communion. Because I always thought, well, we should have, just have communion anyway. But <laughs> because, because, you know, next Sunday when we gather around the table... And we share bread and wine. It's such a simple thing. And yet it's the incarnation, the crucifixion and the resurrection all in this simple meal, which is why Jesus commanded us, you know, whenever we get together as Christians, this is what we should do. It just reminds us of the whole thing of God's love for us. God incarnate, God crucified, God resurrected. And it says that as they do this, that their eyes are open. Now, it's not that they're you know, they weren't at the Last Supper. They're not remembering it's from the Last Supper. These aren't two of the apostles. They weren't there. So it's not because he did it at the Last Supper and think, oh, this is the Last Supper. They weren't there. It may be because they were at the feeding of the 5,000 or the feeding of the 4,000 and they, you know, they recognise. But there's something about just the power of God making himself known in this meal that we share together because the gospel is represented as we break bread and as we share wine together and their eyes are opened and they recognize him 
And again, as I said, you know, a few moments ago, it's so often the case that when people come to faith in Christ, they realise that actually Jesus has been walking alongside them for quite some time and has brought people around them. I remember um, my second curacy when I was in uh, up in the northeast in Chesley Street and we did we did loads and loads of baptisms because uh, it was, you know, an Anglican church and lots of people came for, you know, for baptism. And I, I think over the course of the years that I was there, I baptised uh, probably 200 babies, at least 200 babies. And of all those families, I think there were, there were out of, yeah, out of 200 families, there were two who, where the parents came through to faith and, and worship regularly. And um, a couple of years ago, uh, I had the lovely thing of seeing on Facebook that one of those families where the parents came to faith, um, he is now the director of mission for Durham Diocese. And so it's just a lovely, lovely thing. But those two families, they both had friends and family who were Christians who were praying for them. And, and they didn't realise this at the time. But afterwards, they kind of, dis- and, and we dis- I discovered that they had you know, Christian family members and friends who had been praying for them. And because of their prayers, Jesus had kind of been walking with them, even though they hadn't recognised him. And then they got to the point of realising who Jesus was and their eyes were opened they recognised him and they continued the journey. Just a reminder of how important it is to pray for you know, our family members who don't know Christ and our friends who don't know Christ because the Lord hears those, hears those prayers. And then they read, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? You know, suddenly it just all, it all makes sense. And they got up, returned at once to Jerusalem. And there they found the 11 and those with them assembled together saying, it's true The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. Suddenly the reality of the resurrection has come to life for them. And the other, just to finish, the other lovely little thing about about the fact that they recognise him in the sharing of a meal is because it, it points us towards the relationship that God wants us to have with him. It's, it's a thing, again, that we're reminded of in Revelation, this lovely verse in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, where Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, you know, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, eat with them and they with me. It's just this lovely picture of sharing a meal together, because in the, in the Middle East, what is so important is hospitality. You know, someone comes to your home, you prepare a meal for them and you share hospitality and you, you invite them into the kind of the bosom of your, of your home. You invite them into, it's not just, you know, sustenance, it's relationship. That's what's important. And so this meal points to the fact that that's what God wants with us. He wants relationship with us. He wants us to know that he loves us, that we're welcomed into his home. So this beautiful meal that we share together, it points to the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection. But why God did all of that, it's because he wants relationship with us. And that's what we're privileged to have. And my, you know, my prayer in these, you know, the days that we're living through, are these, uh, there'll be days in which the church has the opportunity just to speak powerfully of the hope that we have and the relationship that we have that gives us peace. That gives us certainty. That means we're not disturbed by the days that we are living through. But we have a, you know, we, our lives are based on a rock, which is Christ. 
And we know the love of God that sustains us, that even when everything is falling apart around us, we have a relationship, a certain relationship with the God who loves us. And so as we were sharing a bit earlier in, uh, you know, in our service this morning, our, our prayer for our new king is that he would know that personal relationship with the Lord Jesus as he becomes our sovereign and as he leads us for the rest of his life, that part of the example that he sets would be this certain hope in a saviour, very much praying for him as he becomes our sovereign. And uh, when we come to our, when he comes to his coronation, one of the most beautiful parts of the coronation service is that before, before the sovereign is crowned, they kneel before the living God. And they kneel before Almighty God and the, the sovereign before they're crowned in all their finery. They're stripped to just a very simple white robe. Presumably for Charles, it'd be a, a simple white, you know, white gown or white suit. And they're stripped of all their, you know, jewellery and finery and jewel, you know, all the symbolism of being a sovereign. And they kneel uh, before the God's throne and they recognise that they are under authority before they take on the symbols of their own authority. And um, uh, that's how they reign. And uh, that's the example for all of us, that we kneel before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords uh, before we live our lives. So let's just take a moment to pray. And um, just to pray for ourselves as we live through these days, uh, that we may live as those who know the hope of the resurrection. That we trust in a God who made himself incarnate, who died for our sins and who rose again. And as we pray for ourselves, so we pray again for King Charles III. That God may have mercy upon him. That God may give him all the strength and wisdom that he needs to reign over us. That he may know personal relationship with the Lord Jesus and be able to turn to him each and every day. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.